Okay, we're going to get started. I would love to welcome all of you on behalf of Wycliffe College and the Meeting House. We get to partner for these events every last Friday of the month. And we're really excited that you're all here. We're excited to be doing these. And this is just one of the wonderful uh, interviews that we do. I'm personally extremely excited about this one. But we do do them on the last Friday of every month. So if you're interested in these theology pubs and getting information on them, there is a wonderful iPad over there. And you can sign up for the email list uh, at any point in the evening and toward the end of the evening and you will be kept informed. So my name is Anita. I'm the lead pastor at the Meeting House downtown Toronto, and I also am the Canadian director for Women's Speakers Collective. So empowering women's voices is something that's really important to me, and I'm really excited about that. And we're here with Marion Taylor and Kira Molman, and we are going to be talking about these voices of women that we've been missing in the history of biblical interpretation, and theology. So why don't we welcome them. Thank you for being here and joining us. You'll all just get to see me nerd out. This is pretty much my dream come true. So we're really excited that you're here. And one of the things that we are actually celebrating this evening is that Marion and Kira are going to be uh, working and are actually already working on a podcast. So Yes, we're very aware that we won't get to everything this evening that we could possibly mine out of these two, but that's okay. There's going to be a podcast to follow, and then um, you can find out some more information about that. If you're signed up to the email list, then you will get information when that becomes available. Um, but yeah, why don't we begin? Um, I've already introduced myself. Marion, would you please introduce yourself as well? Sure. I'm Marion Taylor. I, uh, I teach Old Testament here at Wycliffe. And um, I think the, questioning, the questions that will come will tell you more about who I am, I think. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I hope so. Hi, Kira. Hi. Um, my name is Kira Mulman, and I'm a third-year PhD student here at Wycliffe. I also did my MDiv here, so this is my sixth year of hanging out with Marion. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. Hi. I try to hang out with Marion as much as possible. That's really wonderful. And so in terms of this subject that we're talking about, the voices of our grandmothers, you each have a uh, special connection to this subject. Could you tell us how you first started getting interested in this, Marianne? Sure. I, um, I went in one class that I taught uh, probably about 20 years ago, a student in my class asked the question, could I do a paper on a woman interpreter of the Bible? And it was a course on the history of interpretation, and we were looking in the 19th century on how the church responded to higher criticism, which was a question I was very in intrigued by. But I didn't know of any book written on the Old Testament, or New Testament really, that had been written before 1970 that I could get this woman to do a paper on. And I thought, how could that be? Like that question really disturbed me. I was trained as a biblical scholar, um, and I was interested in the history of interpretation. And all the books that I had read and all the books that I had studied were written by men. And um, that's not surprising in, in part because of my area of interest was on the history of Old Testament studies at Princeton Seminary from 1812 to 1929. So they were all men who were teaching at Princeton, so I, I was doing archival research on how they interpreted scripture and how they responded to criticism. So 
perhaps it's not surprising that there was nothing on women in those in that area but in in all my courses we had just read commentaries by men histories about men and i had taken courses on history of interpretation and it was always the history of men's ideas and men's books because they were the great books and written by men and about men's uh, how how men have had had really conceived of their history so there were no women's voices and i so i was i was driven to to do some research here and i soon found out that i was not the only one doing this kind of research uh, marla salvage had written a book called notorious voices and she's an old testament scholar and in the preface to her book uh, she wrote she told the story about her doctoral exams and she was to prepare a list of 50 interpreters of the bible and she looked at the list and said, these are 50 men's names. And she asked her advisor, Fred Danker, who is a very good scholar, she said, could I include a few women on the list? And he said, there are no worthy women to be on a list like that. But maybe one day you will be on the list. So he wasn't trying to be mean or nasty, but he had been trained the same way I had been trained to read the great books written by men. And we didn't really know of any books, great books written by women, yeah, certainly in the field of biblical studies at that point. So I, was, I kept on um, this journey searching for women interpreters and I found a book written by Patricia Demers who taught at the University of Edmonton and she was an English scholar and it was on women interpreters and she had found a number of early women interpreters and then I found other books. Historians had written on um, women at the time of the Reformation, for example, or the uh, medieval women who had been written, the mystics, people had always been intrigued by their theology, but nobody had really asked, are they interpreting scripture? So we started an Excel chart, and soon we had dozens and dozens of women on the chart, and we had so many women that we narrowed the uh, the the search to 19th century women, which is the century I had studied the most. And, but the problem with finding women interpreters of the Bible is you don't know their name and you don't know the name of the book. So how do you find them? And that, that that's explains in part why we can find them today is that libraries have put their, um, this is too loud, right? The libraries have put their findings online. So um, my student and now colleague Heather Weir was an, is an engineer and, and she's very good at doing this kind of research. So we looked on the British Library site and typed in Mrs. as author and Bible as subject and then all of a sudden we got lots of hits. And then I remember one night uh, looking for common Victorian girls' names. And so we had Mary and Elizabeth and Julia and all, so I looked up Mary and Bible and Elizabeth and Bible and and so we found more and more hits and then believe it or not we looked year by year 1800 books by Bible on the Bible to find any book written by a woman on the Bible so soon we, were, we got hundreds of books written by women on the Bible um, which was so exciting because we knew of none of them and then all of a sudden we're finding and for me as a biblical scholar the most exciting finds are commentaries on the Bible. Like who knew uh, women wrote whole commentaries on the Bible, including 
two 19th century women, Mary Cornwallis and Sarah Trimmer, who wrote commentaries on the entire Bible, which is quite amazing because it's a big book, as you know. Um, and these women wrote on the whole Bible. One of them is four volumes, and the other one is a very big, thick book. Um, Sarah Trimmer's is a, is a very helpful commentary. You can find these things now on Google Books. So even since that we began our search for women, there are so many more voices out there because books are being scanned in, and, and you can do s searches of them. So, so this whole field is burgeoning, right? It, it's just, as, as more and more books uh, are available online, we can find information on who wrote on the Bible and what did they write, and you can search the word, you know, the name Sarah, like how many of these old books commented on Sarah? And so now you can do that kind of, uh, you know, search. So, so that, that really changed my life and has changed the lives of lots of uh, scholars who are now involved in the search for women interpreters. And um, we have more than you can imagine now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's incredible. It changed my life too. I was in Marion's class and you kind of casually said, uh, well, we know that women have been interpreting the Bible and doing theology just as long as men have been. And I was like, <gasps> I don't know. Is that true? I think that's true. And then being able to dig into that in your classes and a little bit further has been really wonderful for me. So thank you. And then Kira, you're uh, studying something that is kind of really complementary. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. So... My research for my PhD is on death and children. Um, so how does children's literature address the topic of death? And if you think about it, a lot of those stories actually do talk about death. If you think of Charlotte's Web, uh, for example, or Little Women, a lot of those stories are taking death head on, Anne of Green Gables, all of these stories. So when I was doing my master's, I started getting into this as my thesis, and I didn't feel like that topic was exhausted by the 20-page thesis that I had to write, so I decided I would just do a whole PhD on it. <laughs> um, but when I was asked to be part of this podcast, I thought, this is exciting to me because I'm a woman and I've been impacted by this topic. Um, so I was asked to do this podcast with Marion. I really enjoy spending time with her, and as a woman, I care about this topic, but I didn't think it necessarily overlapped with my research until we got into the second podcast, which was on Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. So as I was reading Uncle Tom's Cabin, I realized she's preaching in this book, and so many of the books that are part of my research are written by women. Women often wrote children's literature, and they'll jump out of the narrative to start preaching to their audience, whether that is on slavery in Uncle Tom's Cabin, or it's on family life, or just theology. And I realize that this is actually helping <laughs> my dissertation, so that's really exciting for me. Win, win, win. Okay. And then when we are talking about, I know you kind of touched on this, but I'd like to dig a little bit deeper. But when we're talking about the breadth of scholarship here, 
like how, how many women are we talking about? Like how many have you found? Is it just, you know, you found one bookshelf in a library somewhere that we hadn't touched or? Actually, if you look over here on the screen. Oh, perfect timing. <laughs> uh, yeah, perfect timing. Those are some of, yeah, now it says thousands of women and, and those are some of their pictures, right? Um, you know, some of them are older, some of them are 19th century. Um, anyway, so in the Handbook of Women Interpreters, there are 180 women in there. But if we were, uh, but we could add so many more, right? But we don't have the equal numbers of women in each century, right? So in, in the handbook, up until the seventh century, probably, we have maybe just a handful of women. We've got, um, and the, the, what wi early women were doing, often we hear from their brothers who were like the uh, Paula and, and some of these early women who were involved in ministry with their brothers who were bishops. They write about these women, but we don't actually have their writings. But more recently, um, like two of the early women wrote what are called centos or kentos, and they're very clever. They're retellings of the story of salvation using Lat the Latin, uh, like Virgil, for example. And they, they knew the Latin classics very well. So they took phrases and half phrases and put them together to tell for the first time the story of the Gospels. Like, and it's a very clever way to teach your children. They wanted their children to know Latin, but they didn't really think that the theme, you know, the Odyssey and the Iliad were that good in terms of morals. So they took the great Greek texts and, and reworked them into the, and retold the stories of Genesis and the stories of Jesus. So, so they were very popular for centuries. And uh, so we have those. And then we have the, the travel diaries of a woman named Egeria, who's a very wealthy woman and um, writes letters back to her uh, friends in Europe. And she's saying like, here I am in Bethlehem and here I am on Mount Sinai. And she describes the scene and then references the Bible. And it's very important witness to the literal sense of scripture at a time when many other uh, people were doing allegory and typology. She says, here I am at the foot of Sinai, right? So. So her writings are quite important, and we'd known about them, but only as texts to help us understand liturgy, because she'd go to, she'd go to various churches and described how they were doing uh, you know, Eucharist and what they were doing, what they were reading, and that's very interesting to historians and people studying liturgy, but biblical scholars had never looked at this stuff. So those are early women, and then as we go closer to the present, of course, the numbers of women who write and are literate go way up. And uh, because of the printing press, we have many more books. So we have great writings at the time of the Reformation. I mean, Katerina Zell is uh, married to Matthias Zell, and she was a reformer's wife. And we have um, Matthias died early. He was older than she was, and when he died, she preached at his funeral. Beside the graveside, she stood up and preached a very long, like 45-minute sermon. It's like, this is my chance, right? <laughs> so we have these sermons by women, right? And we have, we have uh, an Italian uh, scholar has found sermons written by women uh, that were housed in the Vatican's library. And uh, so we have women who were going out preaching at the time of Savonarello, who, who was a, deemed a heretic, and, but he had a lot of women 
followers who were preachers. So it's very interesting. We're finding new figures in church history and a lot of women's voices that were never known or, or they were forgotten about. Um, and even in the, like in the Wesleyan tradition, we've got Susanna Re Wesley's writings. She was so influencing on her family, her, you know, her many, many children uh, that she taught, but especially on John and Charles Wesley. But she is a figure that should be remembered as more than just mother of John and Charles, right? She was a force to be reckoned with in her own right. So, so for me, it's very exciting to find these uh, forgotten foremothers. When I read them, I get very excited. I think, uh, why didn't I know about these women? When I did my Master of Divinity, I, like, I can't remember studying these, any of these figures, actually. And, and you think, why didn't we know these women? And then when you actually get into their writings, what is... I think most significant for me, anyway, is that they often provide a different interpretation of texts, especially regarding women. And I, I think it's, you can argue that um, throughout history, there's been a strong tradition of, uh, that interprets Genesis 1 to 3 in a very negative way for women, that women are responsible for the fall, women are evil, women are you know, gullible and, and bad. And there's this long tradition of, you know, just as Eve fell, all women have fallen, and all women are responsible for sin. And there's some, uh, like some of the early church fathers have some really terrible things to say about women, like uh, Tertullian, for example, and he says, you know, just as, you know, you should, women, he's preaching, and it's a sermon to women, which I think makes it harder for me, as he says, you know, all you women, you should go around in, in gray garb being repentant because you were daughters of Eve. But not all, I mean, not all church fathers wrote such terrible things about women, but there, uh, and some of them realized that actually who's to blame for sin in the New Testament is not Eve, but Adam, right? So the, um, my colleague, Ch Stephen Chester, I, I heard you say this, and you said the pressure of Scripture, right? The pressure of the whole message of Scripture was such that some very good uh, early theologians realized that it wasn't all women's fault after all, right? The, the men are also involved in the problem of sin. But, some, but women pushed back more than men, I think, because it actually impacted their life, right? And so we have a, a witness century after century of women pushing back and saying, wait a minute, that's not the only way to interpret Genesis 1 to 3. Or, you know, or when we get to the New Testament, that the tradition, well, that when Paul says women should keep silent, well, how do you interpret that verse? Do you interpret that verse as saying all women at all times in every generation, in every civilization should keep silent in church or keep silent, right? Or um, shouldn't speak or... So how you interpret those verses is very interesting. And there's, so now we have a very long history of women saying, uh, does that mean I can't speak or prophesy or teach or preach? And often women say, no, I can. Because, and I, I would, um, the example, I think one of the most telling examples for me is in the writings of a woman named Harriet Livermore, who wrote uh, really a biblical theology in 1823. And she was a woman who felt called to preach. And 
but she knew what the New Testament teachings had as traditionally understood as uh, applicable to all women at all times. And she felt, um, so she takes the verse, you know, women should keep silent according to the law. And then she goes back and says, well, where in the Old Testament does it say women should keep silent? So she goes through the Old Testament uh, book by book and, and female character by female character, and she said, there aren't any examples. And what instead, what she sees in the Old Testament are women like Deborah, a leader, a judge, right? A woman like Sarah who says, who kind of actually orders her husband around. Um, and others, very strong women. And she's very touched by Huldah, the prophetess. And, and um, so when she comes to, her, to the New Testament, she says, which is what we would say now, is I think it would be the consensus of scholars, would be these letters of Paul to the Corinthians, which were like it was a new church. They were new Christians. They were pretty messed up. And he's saying right now, in this context, women keep silent because those women were new Christians. They are upsetting the order of church. Uh, be quiet right now, right? But that didn't mean all women at all times should be quiet because the consistent message of the New Testament when you look at Jesus and women, is not that all women, like Jesus had women studying, he had women on his team, Paul had women on his team. So, so these women are pushing back because they say when you look at the big message, the clear message of scripture, you have women involved in teaching and preaching and evangelism and doing all this stuff. So, so women have pushed back and, and they've said, um, I can you know, I feel called to preach, I feel compelled to preach, and they preached. And that was what's so pr surprising to me, especially when we found Anglican women sermons in the 19th century. And you think, gee, I didn't think Anglican women were ordained in the 19th century. Well, they weren't, but they did preach. And uh, they preached uh, in using what were called addresses. So we found many books called Mother's Meetings Addresses. And it was my husband who figured this out. He was reading one of them one day, and he said, this is a sermon, because they're using exactly the same rhetorical language that a preacher would use. And they were preaching to women and children and teenagers. But of course, they were doing it probably in the basement of the church and not upstairs in front of a pulpit, but they were preaching. So that's for me, is very exciting, is that there's a long history of women doing all the things like I guess if they could, if you can't find, if the church says no, they find a way to do it anyway, and that's kind of yeah. what, so what's happened, I think. <laughs> and in such creative ways, right? In like some of the writings ways. that we've had are from like letters to their children Absolutely. or, you know, children's stories and things like that. So we've learned um, that there is like a whole breadth of history here. How, how has it come to be that we haven't had this in some of our education or that this is just kind of groundbreaking work that you're doing right now with recovering some of women's voices? How could that be? Well, I, I've always thought nobody's tr nobody intentionally tried to suppress these voices in general. <laughs> I, I found some exceptions this week and I thought, I, I mean, so, so you believe it's not just me who's saying this, right? right? Some goodies to us. <laughs> I have, have some. Here. Yeah, there, there's an, a book out called um, "Women and the Landscape of American Higher Education." So I w I'm interested in this because I was interested in the roles of women and 
in this book, at the back, it's got this chart of all the higher educational institutions founded by women. They're pages, right? And, and they're very important, like Garrett Biblical Institute, and now it's Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary, was founded in 1855 by Eliza Garrett. Who knew, right? So all these women were, you know, they gave their money. They thought women and men should be educated, and they, they founded schools. But then there's a story um, about a Pentecost. This is about holiness, Methodist holiness, women, and Pentecostal women who founded educational um, big, ed well, like Bible colleges and universities. But here it says, within Pentecostalism, there was a tradition of attributing to men new works of God established by women. I thought, what? And so in this book, he has all these examples of women who started churches and women who founded schools. And, the f and then men said, well, actually, we did. And I thought, are you kidding? And I, and um, one version of this phenomenon is that the founding of a church or churches planted, planted by a woman is attributed to a male pastor assigned once the congregation was organized into a church. In other cases, among married couples, the wives tended to demure to their husbands and allow them to get the credit for ministerial endeavors accomplished by either or both of them or by the wife alone. Apparently, this was commonly done. So my, what I used to say was it wasn't intentional, but that sounds intentional to me. Um, so we know the books on the history of uh, women's preaching in the, in the 19th century. Um, they talk about all the churches planted by women going west. They, they were evangelists. They planted churches. And then within 20 years, most those churches have been taken over by men. And the planters have been... Like the men said, oh, well, really, you should be silent we, in the church, right? After they planted the church. And so, so there is, I don't know, so there are some dark parts of this story, but I don't, th I don't see it as a dark story. And, and I think that's why um, I can think in, in the 19th century, there was a second great awakening, and women and men became Christians. They were very excited about their faith. And then people like Moody and a guy named Gordon, who is involved with Gordon, what's now Gordon College, they said, we need to educate women. Women can be missionaries. Women can be evangelists. We need to educate them. So there were many educational institutions in the 19th century that had women as well as men students. And they let women preach, and, and they did all kinds of things. And this was at Moody Bible College, which was a very conservative place. And women were part of the... Women were even teaching. Women were winning the prizes for preaching classes. But then in the, in the 20th century, there was a pushback. And, um, and they, there was a, a, a move toward a more conservative bent. And they said, well, uh, we shouldn't be having these women in our courses. We shouldn't be having women teach, uh, women even in the preaching courses. And there's another book that I... Um, that talks about how uh, Gordon College at the time then limited admission of women into the school to one-third. And at Moody, they capped the last class that a woman was allowed to be part of in terms of getting a full theological education and being in the pastoral courses was 1929. And then later when Moody wrote, the, the history of Moody Bible College was written, and this was 
This is in this book called No Time for Silence. Um, Jeanette Hassey says, they forgot, they forgot that women had been in their classes. So when they wrote the history of Moody Bible Colleges, it's like, no woman has ever been in our preaching classes. And it's not true. And so she exposes them in this book and um, people uh, like Walter Kaiser and uh, even Roger Nicole said like, you know, you're right, actually, we've forgotten. So I think it wasn't intentional. It was just as history goes on and they forget how, how important, how involved women were in the 19th century. And so women, I don't, there was a real pushback in the 20th century in terms of women's roles. And, and one of the, the ideas seems to be that with the fundamentalist modernist controversies in the 1910s and 20s, uh, like they recovered the fundamentals of faith because the things were changing in the world as they knew it. Right? The Industrial Revolution, women are working outside the home, and you know you have uh, challenges to faith through you know the doctrine of evolution um, and uh, historical criticism. So they said we've got to tighten our theology up. But part of that tightening of theology up involved gender issues. And so they said, actually, we really should put women back in the home. And, um, and they talked about uh, how women's education really should be for preparing women to be good mothers. And instead of preparing them to go out to be missionaries, they're kind of holding them back. So there, that explains why in, in our research, we had hundreds of women in the 19th century, but not so many in the 20th, because the, they were opportunities for women to do ministry were tightened up. So that's kind of a sad story to me. I, I just feel like you make great progress and then somebody says, oh, no, women shouldn't be doing this. And then they tighten back up. So, so I, uh, is it intentional? No. I mean, I think we go through cycles. And, but, uh, I mean, the, you know, the men who taught me weren't hiding the fact that, you know, there were women interpreters. They just didn't know them because they hadn't been taught them. So I don't think there's a sinister plot here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So disappointing. <laughs> so too bad. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, uh, because we lacked this history up until more recently, we had this pattern of women like reinventing the wheel in terms of studying scripture and finding, you know, I think I am called to preach. I think that God does say this is okay. Can you talk about some of the examples of that, maybe in specific? Um, women called to preach? Yeah, like women uh, coming to the same conclusion generation after generation, but not having that history of their mothers necessarily to build on. Right. Well, I think, that, like, uh, as a teacher, I think it's really important to expose people, like, we need mentors. We need, like, you know the saying, if you can see it, you can believe it, if you can, um, and, and I, I think that's really true for women in ministry, and there is a slide that comes up on this little cartoon. I don't know if it's coming up soon. But this is a true story. See these three characters up on the screen, right? It, it, um, so this is a true story that comes from uh, Briarcrest Bible College, where one of our PhD students is teaching. And she was sitting in a coffee shop, and there are three students. It was a summer school course. They were doing First Peter and Karen Job's commentary on First Peter, which is a very good commentary, was the text. And they're sitting, and she hears them saying, I didn't know Karen was a man's name. And that's what the guy said. And the other one said, no, I, I think she is, uh, uh, you know, the author is a woman. 
And the woman and the woman student said, it can't be a woman. A woman, Karen, has to be a man because a woman couldn't write a commentary. This is two years ago, right? So if, if we're not exposed, like if women are never exposed to the fact that women can study theology or women could dare write a commentary, they'll never think that they can do it. So I, I think that's, the, that's because we haven't had the stories of our grandmothers and great-grandmothers, we haven't had shol shoulders to stand on, and then you think you're the first person to do it, right? Like you think you didn't know about other women pastors, right? And I, and um, I certainly didn't have a long history to build on in terms of mentors. but And, and I think there is a, an emotional, there's something really visceral that happens to me anyway, and I, I've found it happens to other people when you think, wow, other women have done this. I'm not the first. I can draw on their experience. And I, and I well remember the day I went to Robart's library looking for a book that we had found by Joanna Gresswell. And she wrote it in 1873, and it's called A Grammatical Analysis of the Hebrew Psalter. So uh, she wrote it as a textbook for uh, Hebrew students at Oxford in 1873. And so I, I was looking down you know, all those big shelves at Robarts, and, and I, I was like, is it here, is it here? And then I found it, and it was like, here it is in my hand, right? And it was like, here is a, a woman writing a textbook used at Oxford. And Oxford didn't allow women in classes till well into the 20th century. It was one of those bastions, we will never have a woman study here, right? But, but here is a woman writing a textbook. Now, she had connections. Her, her uncle wrote textbooks for Oxford, and, and her father was well-known, and she had connections. Her father's friends, who were the best biblical scholars, wrote preface saying, this is a very good book. She knows Hebrew very well, right? But she, of course, did, wasn't allowed to go to university. This was all private learning, you know, privileged woman with private tutors. But she did it. And I think, for me, knowing that women have been involved in the academy, teaching and writing for hundreds of years, it's like, wow, right? It, it's like, you know, an aha moment for me. So it, it gives us a long history and should really help us in our sense of identity and give us more confidence than, you know, it's not you and the boys at the faculty meeting, it's you and, you know, you've got all, you've got all of, I, which, was, which was true when I first came to Wycliffe, it was me and the boys, I was the first woman, right? But, but, that, but that didn't last long and it certainly isn't true now. And, but if I had known, I had a whole, like a myriad of women who were, you know, who loved the Bible, who read the Bible, who taught the Bible, uh, who preached on the Bible, and who were scholars, it, I think it would have helped me be a more confident person. Yeah. And I find that even the other day at the Relevance series, we had a, a, an outreach to the campus, and I was speaking on, is, Christ, is the Bible good for women? And uh, there was, I talked about the story of uh, Jarena Lee, who was another... Um, early 19th century freed African slave, and she felt a call to ministry. So she went to her minister, and, and she talked about her sense of call. Uh, she said, I have a fire in my bones, like I just want to preach. And he said, sorry, women can't preach. 
in our church. And so she went home and uh, like she got married, she had two kids, and then 10 years later she was at church again. And the guy who was supposed to be preaching, he, he just, he lost his place, he just was stuttering. So she stood up in the middle of the church and preached on Jonah chapter 2. And I, it would have been wonderful to be there, right? <laughs> and the same minister who was now a bishop was there, and he heard her preach, and he said, you can preach. And he ordained her to be a preacher. And she became an itinerant preacher across uh, the northern states. And the, uh, the black woman who was a, the, the um, chair of the panel, she came up to us afterwards, and she said, thank you for telling that story. Like, she didn't know there were women, black women, in ministry 200 years ago. And all of a sudden, she has history, a sense of, you know, connection, and a sense of, like, maybe I can do that too, right? So that's why I think it's really important uh, for women and men to get our fuller history. And so that's the big project, is to kind of go back and retell our history to include the voices, forgotten voices. So we're not the only discipline doing this. Um, my colleague, Alan Hayes, has a sister who's a musicologist, and she's very interested in recovering early women musicians. Women wrote masses, they wrote symphonies, and they're just trying now to play those, you know, get, get those women into the great lists of musicians. So scientists, uh, you know, engineers and um, astronomers, and in, in every field there are early women, and we're now going back to say, let's bring them into the way we tell our history so that our history is fuller, right? So it, it is a big project. We need a lot of help. <laughs> <laughs> Come aboard. We need some help. Yeah. Okay, and then, um, Marion, as uh, all of the things that you are, a mother, a professor, teacher, Christian, what has this meant to you personally, discovering these women's voices? Oh, well, um, I love, I love doing stuff, finding women. I, I just, I get very excited. I mean, it's just, it's <laughs> like, wow, I found another one. I, it's like bringing something dead to life, right? I, I mean, it's very exciting. I, I, um, yeah, I, I just think it's, uh, it's sad when their stories are lost and one of the stories we tell on the first podcast is about a Canadian woman. Um, her, her name's Elizabeth Mary Mac McDonald, right? And she did her um, PhD at the University of Toronto in Near Eastern Studies. And she was a brilliant woman, and, um, and her thesis was published in 1929. And she got a job offer at the Royal Ontario Museum. But her father, I think, impacted by some of those changes I was talking to you about, like how women should be back in the home, said, no, I don't think you should work. You should be at home. And here is the most, I, like she's the first woman at U of T in Near Eastern Studies to do a PhD in Bible, right? And uh, so she's probably the most qualified woman in Canadian history at that point. And her father said, sorry, you should be at home. Your mother's sick. You need to look after your mother. I have no problem with looking after sick mothers, but it was like, ah. Huh. And then she married um, a guy she had tutored. Uh, he was younger than her, so he had a master's in Near Eastern Studies. Then he had come to Wycliffe College and, and become an Anglican priest. 
He ended up teaching languages at Wycliffe and Trinity, but his wife was more qualified than he was by far, and she never got to teach. And I, so that may, that's a sad story for me. I don't know that she was sad about it, but I, I'm sad about it. <laughs> but that's an example of a highly qualified person, but because of society's pressure said, sorry, you can't teach. You should stay at home. And she was a minister's wife, so I'm sure she was very busy running the ACW and teaching Bible studies in Sunday school, but she could have also been teaching at Wycliffe right? or Trinity and, uh, she and, and publishing, but she didn't. So they wrote each other nice love letters in Aramaic. I mean, it was like, oh, that's so nice. Um, and then we had to wait for you to do those things well, for us. there you go, yeah. <laughs> and Kira, how about you? Is there... In terms of the impact on you personally from what you've learned, both from Marion and your studies, can you tell us more about that? So I came to Wycliffe from a, a church that doesn't ordain women or have women in leadership at all. And I came because I just wanted to learn more about scripture and theology. And I thought maybe I would go into counseling because women were allowed to do that. Um, and I remember taking Marion's Old Testament class, and we talked about women in leadership. And we read through a church's statement of faith and where they stood on women. And it was very similar to my church's statement. And we read through it, and then Marion said, well, obviously this isn't true. <laughs> <laughs> and we just moved on with the discussion. <laughs> And I remember kind I of I hope I really didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have any other general sentiments? <laughs> and as we continued in this course, I realized the reason that she could say that was because there were so many women in Scripture that were leading and preaching and teaching. And I don't think... wasn't that I hadn't heard of those women before, but no one had asked me to pay attention to them and said, these are your foremothers, which is something that Marion and I have talked about a lot. So that was an exciting revelation for me. And I was doing a Master of Divinity. I had to do a placement at a church. And I didn't want to do one because I wasn't going to go into church ministry, maybe chaplaincy at a hospital. I wouldn't ever have to preach. And the school kind of gently pushed me into doing this placement, and I got to preach for the first time, and I loved it. And it felt like all of the things that I liked doing in one spot, I got to pay attention to the passage and use my Greek knowledge and care about the people that I was speaking to and play with words, all of the things that I really enjoyed. So that was a really exciting discovery for me. But no one ever challenged me on whether I could be preaching or not. No one ever asked me specifically, why are you doing this? Why do you think you're allowed to? Until I was in my last semester of my MDiv. And I was at a conference at Calvin College and a young pastor was asking me about um, my church background, and I told him I was from a Canadian Reformed Church, 
and he said, oh, like, I love the Canadian Reformed Church, and do you um, subscribe to the doctrines of that church still? And I said, I think, like, a lot of the theology I'm still fine with. But I've been learning about, you know, women and their preaching and teaching, and that's been very exciting for me and opened my mind kind of to the scriptural precedent for women doing this. And he said, but don't you think that scripture is clear? And I said, I think it's clear about what matters. I think if you look at these passages in the New Testament, Paul also says when women are talking in church, make sure they cover their hair. So it seems like he's assuming that it's going to happen. So I think that with that and with the rest of the biblical narrative, there is this biblical precedent. And he said, oh, you're just so passionate about the word of God. And I just love that about you. (laughs) So I realized we weren't really talking about women in leadership. We were kind of going through a screening process on whether I would be a good pastor's wife for him. So that, but it was really, um, that was uncomfortable, but (laughs) um, we didn't talk again after that. (laughs) Um, And another friend kind of took over the conversation, and I went and found, I ran into um, my supervisor for my other placement that I was now doing at a school where I was a university chaplain. And I told him that I just had this experience, and it was really disconcerting because no one had personally challenged me on this topic. And he prayed with me, and I came back to school, and that week I had to preach in class. And the whole time I was preparing for this, I kept thinking, what if I'm actually not allowed to be doing this? What if this is actually wrong that I'm doing this? I don't know that I'm allowed to. And I (laughs) stood in front of the class. We had to pretend that we were in a church context and just use our classmates as congregants. And I told them that I wasn't feeling well that day. And if I threw up, it was not my fault. And I apologized in advance. And then I preached my sermon. And then I went in the hall and just tried to breathe while the next classmate preached their sermon. And when I came back into the class for the Q&A, where you receive criticism from your classmates, everybody was so affirming of my gifts. And um, the most conservative people in the class whose churches don't ordain women, they were the most affirming and said, you obviously know scripture so well. And it seems like everything that you do well comes together in this moment. And that was a really important moment for me. Um, And going on to do the PhD and having female professors and then going to conferences where the keynote speaker is a woman, that's an example, like Marion was saying, of seeing yourself at the front and feeling like, oh, this means I could do that too. And I think that 
for me personally, having women in the Bible do that, having female academics do that, and then knowing about some of this research um, that women have been doing for years, that's meant a lot to me, and I think has meant a lot to all of the women that are studying here at Wycliffe. I think it also means a lot to women in the church, right? And, right? and it's not just people who are studying theology. I think it really does change how women see themselves and their roles. Um, it just gives women a freedom to... And I, and I think a lot of the change in how women perceive themselves comes out of um, two things. One, churches that emphasize the importance of creation, right? That in that at creation, God created male and female and gave them dominion. And if you see that equality right from creation and then through scripture, that is very important. But also when in, in times when there was a real emphasis on the Holy Spirit and uh, the Holy Spirit being given to men and women, there was the acknowledgement of the importance of the passage in Joel that in the last times, I will pour out my spirit on young women and young men. And that's picked up in the book of Acts at Pentecost. So, so when churches emphasize the importance of the spirit being given to men and women, that has, and if, if a woman has been given the spirit and a gift of prophecy and proclamation, then they, that empowers them and gives them an authority to, to do that. And I think that's a big change coming out of the Second Great Awakening. You have all these women who feel they are, they're called to preach and teach and uh, evangelize, and that, no, like, it's not, a, it's not a human calling, it's a calling from God, and therefore, like, with, like, that Jarena Lee, I have fire in my bones, I need to speak, right? And then they speak, and I, and I think that's another part of this, is, is that for all women and men, like, if it's God's call, you need to you need to follow up, right? So I, I think that's part of it too. And, and churches that have really given room to where the spirit leads, I think they've been more open, initially anyway, to, to have women preach. Yeah. Wonderful. So it's, it sounds like we are just at the start of, you know, recovering these voices and getting these stories to not only students of theology, but people in our churches, Christians, who would love to hear these stories. So what are you hoping for next? I'd love to hear maybe from each of you. What, what are you hoping for next in this area of scholarship or recovering women's voices? Last, last year, um, a woman named Carmi Font visited Wycliffe. I, um, she's a, a, a Spanish-English scholar who got a 1.5 million euro grant uh, from you know, the European Union. Like, it was a secular grant but it was to uh, collect, go all over Europe in five language groups looking for writings by women. Um, and this is from the 16th to 18th century. So they're looking for letters and um, books and anything they can find in private collections, libraries and archives, uh, because they, these are English scholars and they know, well, and also German and it Italian, like scho scholars of, of literature. Because women have written things, right? And they, but often their reflections are on things like life, death, childbirth, prayer, you know, the Bible, spirituality, God. 
And so when these writings are collected and translated, they're going to be on the internet and available. I think that's a game changer because all of a sudden you have a new database that will show how, and this is one of the questions I'm very interested in, is do women read the Bible differently than men? And my research would, would suggest that some do and some don't, right? But this new database will be very important, I think, for theology, uh, for every, everything we do in terms of you know, how we teach and think about the Bible and theology and pastoral studies because we're going to have a new database. So that's very exciting and moving ahead. So I think, you know, I, I think that, you know, we're, we're, we now know we have women's writings. We need to deal with them and incorporate them. So that, to me, is very exciting. And it's, it's a, a big project, lots of work, and we need lots of people helping, right? Yeah. yeah. It's exciting. How about you, Kara? I think one of the things I'm really excited about is these women becoming household names. So um, my mom just started auditing classes at Wycliffe last year, and she's taking Marion's Old Testament class. And I, it was so exciting to sit beside her um, in her first lecture and watch her taking notes about church fathers and their history of interpretation. But it would be so exciting if there are women's voices and women's names included in that because even those church fathers that shaped the history of the church, they had women that were often funding them, housing them, um, and influencing their thought. And we know some of those names, but it would be really exciting if we could, not just in the academic world, but kind of people in the church who would know those names. Well, I, I would hope for more of these conversations, but it sounds like I might be in luck because we have a podcast coming. Is this true? So as we wrap up, and we can get ready for Q&A, we're going to open up for questions. So if you have any questions, you can get ready with those now. Um, you two are working on a podcast together. You've already begun, but you're going to continue. And so who is this podcast for is a question that I have for both of you, but I also understand that our friend Terry has had a preview of the first episode, maybe the second episode of the podcast. Is that true? So Terry, Terry, maybe if I could put you on the spot, who's the podcast for? I'm a little nervous here because when I offered my comment earlier, I was accused of mansplaining. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, a little bit nervous here. You were accused uh, about please. mansplaining. That's not the same <laughs> Uh, from a man's perspective, I'm, I'm in the room recording and editing the podcast, uh, and we just finished Harriet Beecher, and uh, I, I sat there listening to the comments about her life, uh, about what she went through, about her contributions to uh, the commentary, and I thought, wow, men could really benefit from hearing a woman's perspective. Uh, if, if, you've ever, if you've had the opportunity to go through suffering, you know your view of God changes as you try to adapt to what happened. And with Harriet, listening to uh, the loss of her children, opiate addiction, uh, I believe suicide in one of the situations, uh, I, it was like, what is her perspective on God and scripture? Uh, and, and I'm intrigued to read more about her uh, and what she has to say, because uh, I need to grow, I need to learn, and different perspectives definitely help, and it's time to hear some women's perspectives uh, on, uh, on Scripture. Thanks, Terry. 
And from your from your perspective, I mean, that's a pretty good testimony. You should no, get that, that on the good, website. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> could you type that up for us? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it is exciting to tell the stories of women that we found, right? Because yeah. I, I think there, it's a game changer to find, you know, we're, it's like finding our lost relatives, right? And, and for me, that's very exciting, and I think it is for other people. I, I know it is for... Um, for people who who start who begin to find out that oh boy look at all these women it's really exciting yeah yep. I can't wait yep. Kira why did you want to do the podcast um, so I was asked to do the podcast and originally we had talked about it being women biblical interpreters on the Old Testament and when I was asked um, my area isn't the Old Testament but they thought that I have enough personality that it would make up <laughs> for that. <laughs> Um, and that it would be helpful to have someone who doesn't know everything that can kind of ask the questions that the average person would have. Um, so I was excited to bring my ignorance to the table and put that to service. Um, but I think these are just really wonderful stories. A lot of the women that we are going to be talking about are names that you might know, but you didn't know that they were a Christian or that they had written on the Bible. So someone like Harriet Beecher Stowe, who you know because she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, like she is also a woman of deep faith who influenced her husband, who was an, a theologian. And looking at all of that kind of swirling around, I think it's fun to share that with the world. Um, not just with... Um, fellow scholars, but with people that are in the church and want to learn more, too. Great. And so when does this podcast come out? End of February. End of February. And then why don't we move into Q&A? Great. What do you think? So Terry has a microphone. Do we have any questions? Yes. Back there. So you mentioned Drinali. Uh, I am wondering if in your research, because it is still mainly privileged, educated, white Western women, uh, what other uh, people, women of color, or from other regions of the world besides Europe and North America in your research? Yeah. No, that's a great question. Um, yes, as even when that picture of all the women come up, mostly they're white women, but they're certainly not all white women. And uh, in the 19th century, early 20th century, we have uh, Pandita Ramabai, who's an Indian woman, who was from a family of Sanskrit scholars and who memorized uh, the religious texts. And she became a Christian, went to England, and translated the Bible into her, um, her group's language. So she's an early in Indian interpreter. Uh, we have... Um, my Spanish is terrible, but there is... Um, the woman who is on um, one of the Spanish bills, who's now, let me, it, yes, say it, yeah, say it out loud, because you have the right accent. <laughs> that's Sorwana, yeah, say, that's a, yes, I can't, I, my Spanish is zero. So, so she is really, she was a brilliant uh, Catholic theologian, and um, sh we have her interpretation. So, we, yeah, so mo mostly it's true. It, it's, um, you know, European women, British women, American women. We have a, a Wycliffe uh, student who did her dissertation on Canadian 
women from the 19th century, she found a lot of Canadian women who published uh, works on the Bible in church magazines. So she went to the various church denominational archives and looked through magazines and their you know, poetry, devotional. So women are doing stuff, but you have to look very carefully. So maybe missionary letters, right? I think if you looked at, and I don't think anybody's done this, the, um, Canadian, the Bible societies, right? Wycliffe Bible translators, a lot. I think most of their workers were women. Those would also be biblical. I would say they're, um, you know, you don't translate the Bible without interpreting the Bible. So those, those are always, and then they would work with the, the people in that group and learn from them, and many would be women. So there are a lot of places to look for early interpreters who are not white. We just haven't done that yet. So there are a lot, um, there's, I mean, there is so much work to do, <laughs> right? It is, it's exciting, but it's undone. We had, um, when we were looking for people to put in the handbook, uh, there was a student at um, Vancouver School of Theology uh, who's Aboriginal, whose grandmother had translated the Bible into Cree, and we were going to put her in, but they weren't able to write it up. So it'd be wonderful to have, you know, voices like that. We don't have very many yet. But I think as soon as um, people go, you know, do, do studies of missions and then the early converts and, and their ministries, I think you'll have a whole other voice because it's not, we need global voices. We need to hear how the Bible is received in various cultures because it changes how we hear the Bible because we, we often, you know, well, for me, I, I read out of my, you know, I'm, I'm a white, privileged woman, and my experience as a woman influences how I read the Bible. And so my, the person who influenced me most in pushing me to go beyond was um, Catherine Sackenfeld at Princeton, who studied, who part of her research was she went to um, Korea and other Asian countries, and but with the Korean women, she was reading texts like the story of Deborah and Jael. You know the story of Jael when she puts the tent peg, you know, in the guy's head, sister's head, right? And uh, and then there's the poem, Deborah's poem, right? And at the end of Deborah's poem, it's Sisera's mother says, you know, where where is my son? I'm so worried about my son. And her maids say, oh, don't worry about him. They're dividing the spoil, a womb or two for every man. And so she's reading this lovely text with these Korean women, and she says, and where do you see yourself in this text? And they say, you Americans are like Sisera's mother waiting for the spoils of war. And she thought, wow, I never read it that way, right? <laughs> so, so reading the Bible in, the, in a global context with people who are reading through different eyes is very important. And I, and I think we, that's, that's, uh, we need to do that, right? Because other people see things we, we are blinded to. Um, and, and I think we all have our blind spots. I'm wondering if anyone is doing, from um, a theological perspective, research on women's biblical interpretation and um, evangelism that is not literature. And I'm thinking of a lecture I was at recently by Mary Fonds, who's a quilt historian. And what kind of historian? Quilt. Oh, quilt. Oh, yeah. yeah and yeah. all these yeah. wonderful quilts. Oh, yeah. And her um, 
theological knowledge is non-existent. So she said, yeah, and they told nice Bible stories. But when you look at it and you can see integration of um, the overseer and the factory worker, or you can see integration of um, uh, Pharaoh and the slave in the South, the antebellum. So uh, there is uh, so much there that I was wondering, is anyone doing it from a theological perspective that you might know? Uh, yes. Um, there, we're beginning to do that, right? So my colleague, um, Joy Schrader, and I are, uh, have a book that's supposed to be finished this spring called Breaking Silences. Breaking Silence. And uh, we're, we're looking at women interpreters throughout history, but each chapter is to have, like we're to bring in some art and some music, right? So one of the early 19th century very famous quilts was one of biblical interpretation. It's a very famous quilt. It's on, uh, you know, it, um, and it tells the story of salvation, right? So that is a, a, that is a valid interpretive lens through art, right? And through music, so like through all, the, through all the songs mothers and fathers sang to their kids at bedtime, right? I mean, you're interpreting life for them. So what is interpretation? It can get very large. So, you know, I'm a biblical scholar and I, I'm pretty text-oriented, so my, the, my first get-go is not music or art, but rather, um, you know, biblical commentary. And, but then we also have poetry. There are many genres. So when women were not allowed, like the, they were not encouraged to write theology. I mean, they, uh, bishops would say, no, women, you know, you're feeble minds and weak minds and no education, you shouldn't be writing theology, but you can write children's literature, right? And you can write poetry. And uh, so women would use various genres other than the classic theological genres to do their interpretation. And then they would, they would kind of hide their expertise. So many, I've often thought a dissertation on the prefaces to women's writings would be very interesting because they all, most of them would say, I have nothing new to say here. I'm just popularizing or simplifying the views of other men. And then you read it and think, this is not men's view. Like they're, they're, it's just it's a, a, what we call a topos. It's, it's just the way, the topos of humility. You pretend you're a very humble person. I have nothing to say. And then you open your mouth and say, blah, 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 blah. Right? It's wonderful, right? So, um, so women used other things. There's that in, in Holland, they, they had Dutch tiles, and you, you had your fireplace, and all around your fireplace were beautiful white and blue tiles that told the story of salvation, right? And so all those were ways of teaching and interpreting scripture. Which stories did they put on, right? So th that's another, that's a whole other ballgame, right? And, and it's, all part of the, it, it's all part of the same project, is recovering... And then you have church art, like the, the, the beautiful tapestries and the embroidery on the linens on the altar, right? That's a biblical interpretation. Or the, the Easter eggs that all the Orthodox women paint, right? I mean, where do you stop? <sighs> yeah. So given what you've just said about um, women having access to this this almost subversive way of interpreting scripture um, out of necessity because they were not allowed in the institutionally 
a designated way of doing theology. Um, I'm finding a lot of hope in that, in, in hearing that throughout history, despite the fact that, that women, women's voices have been discouraged from the, from the mainline way of doing theology, God has still found God's self present in, in this history through these subversive means that we were just talking about through children's lit and, um, poetry and art. And, um, I'm wondering what kind of, what kind of theological interpretive consequence do you, do you see in that? What do you, what, what is the result of all of that, um, are having access or women having access to that specific means of interpreting scripture? Wow, that's quite a question, Hannah. <laughs> um, I think women have done things subversively, you know, for a long time. I, um, you know, I, I think the book of Esther is like that. I mean, I use the word manipulative, and some people don't like that. But, I, I mean, I think Esther played the game, right? I mean, she knew the king. She knew his habits. She knew he liked to drink and eat. And so you have two banquets, and, and you know, you set it all up so you, you're, you're, you know how to play the game. And I think a lot of women have learned to kind of be Esther. In fact, they talk in, Engl in literature, they talk about the tapas of Esther that a lot of women said, would, women of, would say, use your position, right? Use your position to influence your husband who is a politician, right? They, they, the Medici women did this, like, and, they, and they wrote about Esther and they said, be like Esther, influence the men in power for good. And during the time of the Reformation, we have a lot of queens, Margaret of Navarre, like they used their influence and power that they had to, to influence people of power to, to be more open to the Protestant cause, right? So I think women have learned to do that. I mean, I, I mean that's why the book of Esther is a, is a controversial one today because Jewish women always used to say to their daughters at Purim, dress up like Queen Esther, right? And now Jewish feminists say, no, be like Vashti, say no, right? And, and so... Like, do you want your daughters to kind of dress up beautiful and play the game and, you know, sleep their way to the top? No. So they, they're saying do something else, right? And I, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm glad we have so many stories of women who found a place, right, and, and had the courage to do what they knew was right. And, you know, we, we have stories of... Uh, uh, a woman who wrote a Hebrew grammar for her 10-year-old daughter in the 15th century. Like, who does that, right? Or they wrote letters to their children. And it's what Susanna Wesley did, right? She wrote theological treatises to her sons and taught her sons good theology. So, I don't know. I, I mean, I think women, even in times where they couldn't be educated. We have stories of the sisters. Their brothers only were educated. They would sit under the table to learn to read, right? Like, so women, it, it is very empowering. Like, if, if the something says no and you feel this is the right thing to do, you need to do it, right? And, and 
And we are just so privileged that we can be educated and we are free and we can, like we are so privileged. We, we don't just have one translation of the Bible, we have hundreds. And um, whereas throughout most of the history, women didn't know how to read, right? So they only could access scripture, you know, through what they heard on Sunday or if for these, I mean, I, I do think it's kind of weird that these women chose to live in closed you know the you know these churches that they built a little cell for women to live in, and that that they had the last rites, and then they they moved into this little cell for the rest of their lives with a cat because there were rats in there. But I, the these enclosed women, they they had a little box, and they could hear they could hear the lessons, and so they 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 memorized the Psalms, they knew the Psalms, and then they wrote theological treatises from these little enclosures. I mean, they're amazing women, right? And, and you think, what, what, what made them do that? They had such a desire to love God, to know God, to write about God, and reflect on things like the theology of the Trinity, the theology of suffering, the, you know, the meaning of life. So I, I just, I'm very excited about the stories of the women that have gone before us that can open us up, encourage us in our faith, encourage us not to be afraid to learn, to think deeply, to go good, go to go deep with God because they did before us, right? I, I'm encouraged at your hopefulness and you're very charitable towards particularly men in in how you talk about it as sort of a Oh, they didn't mean to. That's very nice. Um, but but I guess I, I'm coming fast forward to 2020, and I think in a lot of cases uh, we would experience men and women who I think are willfully ignorant uh, to these issues. And so there's no magic bullet, but if you would to suggest something that would be a book, a text, a website that would help people we may, I assume people are here tonight because they probably are more likely to agree with you, but there's lots of people in our lives who don't. So uh, maybe, and, and maybe that's an assumption, perhaps there's lots of people in the room who are, you know, giving you, you know, evil eyes because they don't like what you're saying. But, but what I'm trying to ask is, is there a, a book or a resource that you could offer to us that we could offer to others in our life that would be accessible but also robust? Accessible meaning not so academic that the average person would be overwhelmed, but also robust enough to really wrestle with the issue of women in, in teaching and leadership. For the average churchgoer. I love I love the book my Amanda Bankhausen has written on the Gospel of Eve. I think it's very accessible and, and it's just out with InterVarsity Press. Um, and she has taken Genesis 1 to 3 and recovered women's interpretations of those early chapters throughout history. And it's a very exciting book. And, and I mean, it, it shows how all those misinterpret I would say, misinterpretations of those texts affected every aspect of women's lives, including the education. Like, you know, women don't deserve education because they're so weak and feeble-minded. And then Ma Mackin, Bathsua Mackin says, and I love this about her, she says, well, if we're so stupid, give us education, right? Because then we, we're, we're in charge of your children, for goodness sake. So out, of, right, of, out of, so out of everybody, you should give women the best education because, you know, you trust us with your children. So 
Whether she believed that or not, that was a good argument uh, because she used the church tradition about women being weak and feeble-minded and, and then turned it on its head to say, give us education. We need education. So I don't know. I like that book. I, I mean, I think um, the Christians for Biblical Equality website has a lot of good stuff on it. Uh, the Meeting House did a series called Her Story. That did, there was a bunch of teaching and some co- podcasts with you and Danielle Strickland. I recommend that. And I've heard that it's been very helpful for some people who've been looking into that. Do you have any books you recommend? Stephen Chester is a New Testament scholar. He w- <laughs> Do you have anything you would recommend? I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, you are putting me on the spot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's about a particular text, but and and it, it I don't think it counts as accessible. But if somebody was interested in the the detail of the exegesis, um, Elder Knapp has got a, a a little book called Junior that is on uh, Romans sixteen verse seven about about uh, Junior as an apostle, uh, and I think that's very helpful in in sorting through uh, the evidence around that text. Um, so I would say that's scholarly rather than accessible, but I, I, I think it's very helpful if somebody's motivated to, to dig into the details of the exegesis. See, that's a good, good point because, I mean, did the translators who changed Junia, Junia, which is a woman's name, to the male name Junius, did they do it because they, didn't, they wanted to suppress the early evidence of women involved as an apostle, right? I mean... What, was that subversive or ignorant? They did it. So I've read, you know, there are some very, you know, a strong, ardent feminist approach would say they did it. They've suppressed the, the evidence of women in the early church. So there's a lot of writings out on that now saying, look at the, look at the evidence in, in the catacombs. Look at iconography. Not iconography. Look at, uh, look at all the art where you see women holding their hands up at the at, at Eucharist and participating, celebrating, right? Well, if this was happening in the early church, uh, what happened? And, and I read an article yesterday, and it, it says, like, in the Vatican, they, they sort of, when they paint, when they portrayed the inside of a certain, you know, um, chapel they they suppressed the idea that there was a picture of a woman there in a, in in a position of celebrating eucharist they didn't want people to know that well so you you can be angry then say you know they are suppressing the evidence that women were more involved in the early church um so you can get really mad about that or or you just say well uh you know, we need to recover that, and we need to make it known, and we need to retell this story to say women have been involved in ministry at every level from the beginning. Um, not all the way through, but, but from the, they were there at the beginning, and then they weren't there. So I think we should go back to where they were in the beginning, that women, sh- women were and are and should be involved in area, every area of ministry according to their gifts, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think um, what's interesting about that particular text in Romans 16, from my point of view, and, and, um, you know, it it names two people, Andronicus and and Junia, and the debate has been, it's quite a technical debate about whether the name Junia is male or female, um, 
I think the, the evidence overwhelmingly supports it being a female name. Um, but what was really interesting to me, which fits in with something you said earlier, is the King James Version translates it as a female name. Uh, but when you get to the late 19th century and the early 20th century, English translations begin predominantly to translate it as a male name. Uh, and so it, it fits with that pattern that you described of, of, of it actually being a more modern phenomenon uh, in terms of the perceived need to, to, to kind of be more restrictive. Not, not a question, but uh, just to say that uh, we do have an opportunity to hear one of, uh, one of scholarship's great women interpreters uh, on the 18th of February here at Wycliffe College. Alan Davis, who is an Old Testament professor at Duke uh, University, is going to be leading our preaching day, and it's going to be on, uh, on, the, on the theme of healing in the Psalter. And she has just written a book uh, that's been very well received uh, called Opening Israel's Scriptures, and she regards it as a work of practical theology. And so uh, she is a, a masterful interpreter of the text, uh, receives a lot of her insights from her work in the majority world in Africa, and, uh, and I think we're in for a real treat, and you'll find details about that on the Wycliffe College website. Thank you so much for joining us, and you're free to stay and mingle and maybe ask some questions on your own.